This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Spark My Muse. Today, my guest is John Bauer. He's the author of Contemplative Caregiving, Finding Healing, Compassion, and Spiritual Growth Through End-of-Life Care. Thank you so much, John, for being my guest today. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed your book, and I, I hope that everybody listening gets a chance to, to read your book. There's just so much packed in here from interviews to a lot of what got you into hospice care and caregiving. And also you really talk about caregiving as a spiritual practice, which I hope we can flesh out a little bit. And I hardly know where to begin because there was so much that impacted me. You mentioned in your book that you wouldn't have written it or really even got into this work uh, without uh, a real tragedy that happened to you. And I was wondering if you could kind of give us the basis for why you began in this direction. I'm sure. So I'll, well, I'll say a thank you also to everyone who's listening. Really appreciate um, being able to, to uh, talk today with you. You know, when I speak about my individual story, I think, you know, what I've found in my travels in life, which includes the research for this book, is that, you know, there is our individual story. And then when we're sort of getting to the, the essence or the truth of, of it, it's pointing to something more, more universal. And so I think that the, the larger uh, story is that we humans, um, you know, we have this kind of life that has uh, a capacity for joy and, a, and certainly suffering is, is central to, to our time on this planet. And, mm. and that suffering, whatever, whatever form it takes can really invite us to, to wake up and engage in, in uh, this uh, contemplative path, a spiritual path. And so for me, um, I would say that began when I was 18. So just two months shy of 19, my mother was uh, murdered. And, you know, no upbringing is, is, uh, is perfect and certainly had, had difficulties in my life. But this was a, a kind of uh, tragedy that um, I would say um, made me aware that, uh, that I was sleepwalking. So it's not like this woke me up to this contemplative path, but it put me on the path. It, it, um, um, I think when, you know, for me, the, the, the losing a mother just confronted me with the, the pain of that, and, but a real struggle with understanding, you know, what, what am I doing on this planet? What are we humans doing on this planet? And, and, and this, this capacity we have to harm each other. And, and then with that, um, the related question is what kind of capacity do we have to, to um, really impact each other in a, um, in, in a positive way. And so mm -hmm. it wasn't like there was some direct connection between losing my mother tragically and then, oh, I'm going to now engage in end-of-life care as a hospice volunteer. It was mm -hmm. about five years later when, when I was 24 when I started volunteering for hospice. Um, but that was really a beginning of a journey um, of uh, trying to understand uh, deeper questions. And for the, you know, having, and the starting point of that is asking the deeper questions, those existential questions. So in college, I double majored in psychology and sociology and, you know, taking courses on motivation and taking courses on social psychology. Um, these were really, you know, classes for exploring um, you know, questions that were relevant to me. And one of those classes was a course, a sociology course taught by a social worker on death, dying, and bereavement. And mm. it was in that class that I first heard of the word of hospice. Mm -hmm. um, and it was still a couple years later before I um, returned to, to hospice volunteering. But really it was, uh, you know, this, this uh, horrible tragedy in my life mm -hmm. that, that, you know, was a... a you know, opened me up to, to questions that would bring me to, the, to this work. Now, I realize that uh, for many people, hospice is a common word to them. But for people who've never heard that word or might not quite understand it, do you think you could just give us a little bit of a definition? Uh, certainly, certainly. So, um, 
you know, to explain what hospice is, I think it's important to sort of look at the origins of it um, to, to, to see the, the, the what hospice is and the why of what hospice is. And mm-hmm. so it was in the um, 1950s and 60s in England where there was a, um, uh, well, she was an Anglican, uh, Cicely Saunders, who was mm-hmm. first trained to be a nurse and then um, uh, became a social worker and then ultimately became a, a, a medical doctor. And through her work um, in um, she in, in the medical system, she was able to see the tremendous suffering of people mm-hmm. who were who were dying. Um, mm-hmm. How they were basically um, not holistically cared for. That the doctors at the time in, in England and in the U.S. And, and elsewhere were basically treating diseases, but not the person, and, and really understood their work as trying to cure. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, death was a was a kind of enemy that that I'm doing battle with, and so when doctors would quote fail at saving someone's life, the, that mm-hmm. person was a threat to their own identity and would be would be pretty much abandoned. And so Cicely mm-hmm. Saunders believed there was another way, and so what she basically did was found a way to 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 take this um, a, a Christian tradition of caring for those who are dying. She did work at St. Joseph's, which was a a, a kind of hospice, not a modern hospice yet, I'll explain what that means, but she took this, this Christian tradition of caring for those who are dying and wedded it with all the best that science could offer in terms of palliating pain, mm. um, in terms of um, medical treatment, and so it was spiritual care and medical care combined. And it's really, we might take for granted today words mm. like holistic care, and really, you know, she and others were the, in the 1950s and 60s were pioneering this way of, of combining spiritual care and, and medical care and really expanding what we think of as medical care, what possibilities are there. Mm. So basically, um, you know, hospice, it, the, the, the first hospice she opened in the late 60s in England was, in, was a place, uh, St. Christopher's was a place where people could go to mm. spend the final you know, days, weeks, months of, of their life. Um, but hospice is also, it's really a concept, and so it, it's not just a place. It can be that people have, in the U.S., it's a diagnosis of six months or less to live, although I've cared for people for, for, for much longer than that, but that's just in, in the medical best guess they have six months or less to live to qualify. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is a, um, a, a team of doctors and nurses um, and social workers, and can be music therapists, chaplains, and then volunteers who are are seeking to meet the um, physical, emotional, spiritual, and social needs of dying people. So Cicely Saunders coined this term. She called it total pain. So um, all physical pain, social pain, spiritual pain that, that the hospice team attempts to, to meet the needs of folks. Mm-hmm. And so... So uh, the reason I began by, by speaking about what was going on in, in medicine at the time where doctors were treating the disease, not the patient, mm. not the whole person, hospice care understood that when someone is dying, it's often the family members who, who may actually be suffering more than the dying person. Mm. Think today of how many people are, are you know, uh, women um, largely are caring for dying husbands or mm-hmm. a family member, a spouse or, or, or an adult child caring for a parent with uh, with dementia or alzheimer's mm-hmm. think of the tremendous suffering of the caregiver mm-hmm. and the needs of the caregiver well Cicely saunders and, and other founders of the hospice movement understood that 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 caring for the whole person means also caring for their family mm-hmm. so the grief of the family and that if we're we're supporting the family that can actually reduce the pain various kinds of pain of the of the, of the dying person themselves and mm-hmm. so that's the, the, the concept of hospice, is this holistic care. I call it contemplative care, and in my book I, I, I lay out what Cicely Saunders didn't use this term, but the philosophy is there, and I, I say there's these five basic principles of contemplative caregiving that are embedded in that approach. Mm. But that's sort of the essence of it, is, is meeting the, the fullness of the person. dying person mm. is not just a disease, it's not just a physical person, but has emotional, spiritual, and social needs, and we want to, as best we can, uh, meet all, all of them. Mm. Yeah, what a glaring gap in in health and treatment. 
that it was like overdue <laughs> to, to come and meet those needs. And as you speak about caregiving as a spiritual practice, that's kind of a whole, a whole different thing um, because uh, as you're explaining it in the book, and you're explaining other spiritual practices in the book, I like to mention um, some of them are the, the practice of encouragement, reflecting on our impulse to care, a life well lived. Who would you be without your grief? I, that was particularly uh, meaningful for me on page 80. Loving our imperfect care, an infinite debt that's related to reciprocal love, uh, a playful spirit of compassion, being a spiritual friend, embracing our shared humanity, the practice of gratitude. You you mentioned all of those in the book as um, spiritual practices, which I found just very helpful in, in terms of how, not, not practices separated from who we are, but deeply embodied in how we are relating to other people. And maybe you could talk about how that relates to to what you do and what you see happening as people are volunteering. Certainly. So, so I'll say that the, that the book, so I'm a sociologist by training, and the book began, began when I was 24 caregiving myself, and so there's many stories in the book of my own experiences. Mm-hmm. But then as a professor of sociology, um, I interviewed um, hospice uh, volunteers in the U.S., and in Germany, so in many different hospices, in Baltimore, in upstate New York, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, in Freiburg, Germany, in Berlin, Germany. So 75 people in total I interviewed, and, and many of their stories are included in the books. So I'm looking at, at hospice, and in particular hospice volunteering, but I'm really talking about the possibilities that caregiving, any kind, whether it's teaching, parenting, coaching, um, caring for someone who's not dying, but just you know, caring for for for, uh, for someone who is sick, mm. can be approached as this, as what, what what you mentioned as a spiritual practice. Um, and then the the point of the book is to offer stories that that are both inspiring, encouraging, and and illustrate some deeper teachings. So these are some real possibilities for mm. cultivating compassion. That's what the, the book is looking at: how we can develop compassion, different mm-hmm. components of compassion for caregiving. Mm-hmm. And then these contemplative practices, there's 10 chapters in the book, and each chapter has a contemplative practice that you, you list with them mm-hmm. that's to really support uh, readers in, in integrating, not just, you know, reading this separate story here that I'm offering, but, but working and how I can apply it and use it in my own caregiving. And starting point of what, what I mean then by this caregiving and spiritual practice, I'm going to go back to the origins of the hospice movement mm-hmm. and say that at the outset, there were, there were two real um, powerful intentions. And so one was to provide, as I said earlier, this, this new way, a better way, as, as they would use, to, uh, to an alternative to caring for folks. So this holistic way of providing the best possible care for folks who are dying, uh, you know, death with dignity, um, this sort of thing. But they had another intention, and that intention was to empower lay people um, that we would, you know, we humans have always cared for our, our, our each other as we're dying and, and, mm-hmm. and didn't want that just to become this expert medicalized thing. When mm-hmm. it wanted this practice of caregiving to be, take its place back in the wider community where we, people like myself, <laughs> just no, nobody special, just someone who, who you know, mm-hmm. wants to care that I would feel confident and be able to develop those, those skills the care and the sensibility. Uh, they understood, so Cicely Saunders and others understood that uh, in all, all the major re- uh, religious traditions, so in, 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 in Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, um, Islam, there is this understanding that, that, that death um, can really wake us up to life, can really uh, help us spiritually grow. It's expressed in, in, in Psalm 90, verse 12, uh, it teaches the number of our days that we would gain a heart of wisdom. Well, mm. well, when we're caring for those who are dying, prayer that the psalmist is lifting up, every time I'm meeting with someone who's dying, I can be reminded of my mortality, so I can gain a heart of wisdom, every interaction. And so mm. that, in, in essence, is a way to understand what I mean by caregiving as a spiritual practice, it can be, and, and people I've interviewed have actually used this word that, that when I'm caring for folks who are dying, it's like a prayer. Mm. And, and, and they're saying many things with that, but one of the things they're saying is that it's something that's opening them up, it's deepening their connection to, to, to the divine, to God. 
um, to the sacred and allowing them to uh, return to, turn themselves towards, turn themselves around towards, towards deeper questions. Um, so when we speak of spirituality, we're um, referring to uh, that which gives our lives meaning and a sense of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be, you know, for some, a connection to, to, to God, a connection to whatever it is we hold sacred. And so when caregiving becomes that place where we're, we're, we're finding the deepest sense of meaning and purpose in our lives and when we're exploring a way to be connected to a, to a sense of sacredness, that's what I mean by caregiving a spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. And another way of, I speak about that in the book is when caregiving becomes for us a path of self-illumination. Mm. What, what I mean by that is, you know, when we're caring for someone, especially in, in hospice, there's a sense that, oh, these are such good, you're, you're so kind to be doing this, and mm. may have a sense that in caring for others, I'm doing something charitable, mm. right? I'm, I'm giving something to others. Well, of course, that's, that's part of what's going on. I'm, I'm helping others. And yet, yet the founders of the hospice movement understood that, that, um, that, that those who are dying can, can turn us towards these deeper questions of meaning and purpose. And if we're not receptive to that, then we're the ones who, who, who are missing out. Mm. And, so, and so that illumination can, to what extent am I able to See who I am in the caregiving, seeing what's coming up for me, places where I get stuck, places where I'm open to joy and unexpected places. Mm-hmm. Things like that are, I explore in the book and encourage mm-hmm. caregivers to um, turn towards caregiving with that kind of mm-hmm. um, spiritual mindset, we could say, and heart set. Yeah. And you mentioned, too, there's there's some trust um, that's that has to happen with this person who's in their final days and vulnerability that's inherent in their situation. And that um, even though you're a stranger, there's a kind of can be a kind of comfortableness because you don't come with all the baggage, but you're a friendly uh, face and you're, you you don't mean them any harm. You're there as a friend and they can, they can open up to you maybe differently than they can uh, because you don't come with baggage. But there is a reciprocity to the relationship because um, you are, at least you can be open to the fragility of life and to the, you know, the, the fleetingness uh, of our mortality and, and many other, you know, many other realities that we can gain wisdom from. Um, I think one of the harder things, and, and this, these, are, these show up a lot in your book too, uh, the challenging problems of um, some of the people in the book that seem, should we say, less redeemable, and those challenges. Maybe you can speak to some of the things you've learned or heard of, mm-hmm. where people are. You know, the, the match, the matches are more challenging. The first part of of what you're saying here, it's it's in the book. I refer to this as offering spiritual friendship. Mm, right. So when we are approaching caregiving as, as, a, as a spiritual practice, we are offering spiritual friendship to another. And so you know, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm drawing on a long uh, history of contemplative authors who've used this phrase, the term spiritual friendship. I didn't invent it. Um, and so we could start by saying, okay, what do we mean by a, by a friend? Well, you know, we typically think of as a friend as someone that we have a relational history with, right? we have some sort of past with them, we've had a set of experiences that mm-hmm. helps us feel connected to them, um, that we are alike in some way, you know, perhaps because of, um, of those shared experiences or identities. And you know, we, we think of friendship as having some sort of reciprocity that, you know, that, I'm, I'm, you know, that there's a giving and receiving, and if a relationship becomes too one-sided, well, that often can lead to an ending of the, of the friendship. When I'm speaking about, uh, about spiritual friendship, I am referring to um, not being connected to someone because they are like me, mm-hmm. um, that there is, a, there is a, a, a deeper possibility of meeting someone um, beyond those likes and dislikes, beyond those because um, of something that I'm getting from them, or even because there's something that I want to do for them. Mm. It's simply a, a practice of being with. Mm-hmm. And we human beings have this tremendous capacity for, um, for compassion, of simply being present and witnessing the experience of another and how healing mm. that can be to simply be with. Mm. 
This actually ties back when you, when you say the matches aren't, aren't, aren't quite right or, or when we're caring for someone that maybe we really don't like. <laughs> you know, that, that uh, um, you know, this is not someone that I spend my time with um, or someone who's really challenging to us, maybe making us see parts of ourselves. Hmm. Even in those situations, we have the capacity to be present with a loving intention. Mm. And so that is really this essence of spiritual friendship is staying close to that loving intention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can offer a few stories there to illustrate what, what I mean by this. And, you know, there was a one woman I interviewed who, you know, she went into um, hospice uh, volunteering with this idea that, that what that meant was I'm going to, I'm going to listen, I'm going to support people in their spiritual journey. That means that they're going to be telling me about what it's like to be dying. And I'm going to listen without judgment, mm. which is a, a, a sort of a key, a key concept in hospice care, listening mm -hmm. without judgment. But for her, that meant talking about, about dying. They're mm. telling me about what it's like to die. And I'm just going to be a friend. You can be there and not turn away, which is a lovely intention. Mm -hmm. And yet it gave her this kind of a that this person needs me to, to do this for them, to listen to them talking about death. Well, mm. it was really quite a funny story where she's talking about a woman who had no interest in talking about dying. And from her perspective, she was in denial of the fact that she was dying. Mm. And she just wanted me to, to take her here and take her there in her, in her <laughs> wheelchair. What this woman is describing, and many people I interviewed in my own experience, learning how we, ha we can have an overt, a gross agenda, not gross in a, in a, that it's bad, but, but gross in the sense of it's like a real driving agenda of mm. what I think I need to do. What can happen when we're caring for those who are dying, when we really are showing up with that intention to, to be there, we can sort of see how, mm. how what we think they need from us isn't what is actually needed, and we can mm. sort of let go of our own agendas and, mm. and, and simply be present to what is. And what she found was, a really irritable person and, and just so belligerent and no one wanted to be around her. But what she found out is actually I'm the irritable one. I'm the one who's trying <laughs> to get, get her to, to die the way I think she needs to die. Um, the, the way she describes it is actually quite, quite beautiful. So, so um, in, in the book where she's saying that, that what happened for her, she got to see how I'm not actually as nice as I think I am. Mm. <laughs> um, and it was real learning opportunity for her of caring for this one woman of what it means to, to, to show up for someone and offer spiritual friendship. It's meeting people where they, where they are. I, mm. A metaphor that, um, that one woman in, in, in Freiburg and the Black Forest in Germany used was, um, this was a really powerful metaphor for her, that we're, when, we're, when we're caring for someone who's dying, we're second violin. Mm. And so we're, we're, we're always following the lead of the dying person, whatever their needs are. We're, we're, we're listening and really presencing in and receptive to where they are and following that lead. Mm. In the contemplative practice I offer in this particular chapter, I use the metaphor of, of improvisation. So anyone who's mm. done improv knows mm -hmm. that when we're doing improv, it doesn't matter how smart we are, how witty we are, funny we are, how creative we are. What really matters um, is to what extent I can follow the, the, the offering of another, mm -hmm. the need of another, and, and be who is needed to be in response to what they're putting out. Mm -hmm. And so it's a real, it's actually a playful, receptive mm. mode I'm speaking about here mm -hmm. that re requires us not to take ourselves too seriously mm. as a caregiver and not be fixed around our ideas of what it means to care, how we offer care. Mm. Uh, I'll, tell, I'll tell, give one other example that may resonate with a lot of listeners you know, often uh, I see a lot of pain around this when, when folks are sick and dying around food. Mm. Um, I, I'm a cook. I'm a baker. I just, you know, mm. bake a beautiful little challah to send to school with my daughter to share with her class. Mm. Each week she takes in a loaf of bread. It's a ritual that, uh, that we do that and, and to share in the class. And, mm -hmm. and it's something that I express a lot of care through baking and cooking. Mm -hmm. and, and how lovely that is that we human beings break bread together and can receive care mm -hmm. through food and connect with food. But when folks are, are sick and, and, and dying, mm. even, even their favorite dish, that we come to a point where we don't want, where it actually can be sickening to eat. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen a lot of suffering around that, mm -hmm. of, of needing to, to understand that, that uh, someone isn't, can I just offer something a bit more flexible? Mm -hmm. I can, <laughs> 
when 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 our caregiving is is through food and then it can no longer be received mm. for example yeah and what you're talking about the the flexibility and being supple um in our presence with someone else uh, i love that improv metaphor or, or correlation and especially it really reveals our our control issues or our power issues and we think I'm going to help you the way I want to is is a really an interesting little mirror back to our own um, either insecurities or, or just foibles and that's that's really remarkable um, how showing up will will create these growth opportunities for us if we're if we're aware enough to to do that you know that's that is why it's a spiritual practice because it will absolutely refine you exactly it's such an excellent point there there's a very um very affecting very moving portion of your book you don't have to reveal the whole thing i i'm sure people will get a lot out of out of reading all of it but it was very touching to me how you um talk about your relationship with your father and um, offering presence and um, offering really your heart and your presence to other people and then coming to the realization that you could then do that to your dad to offer that same thing to your dad and and any way you want to encounter sharing some of that with our listeners I think would be really special absolutely before I do that, I'd like to just follow up on, on uh, what you mentioned about this, this flexibility and suppleness mm-hmm. is, is what, what makes it the spiritual practice. That is the, the, the dimension. So I just want to offer mm-hmm. one more um, follow-up on one thing you said there, that mm-hmm. you know, to speak of caregiving as, as a spiritual practice, we can all say this means uh, that, we're, that we are touching in on our powerlessness. Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. that supple, that flexibility is that that I need to do, I need to be, I need to need to help, I need to do something. Mm. And so it's touching in on that powerlessness, and that's really where the healing power comes, that there are possibilities that are that are beyond my own agency or capacity to do. Mm. That when we feel like we can't do anything else, we we might often get frenetic and mm. to use the food and force feed, you know, mm. to try to make it happen. And it's when we can sink into that that sense of powerlessness, that's actually the empathetic connection. To mm. What kind of powerlessness do you think this person feels mm. as they're approaching death that they have no power to stop? Uh-huh. So really, that coming into our own powerlessness is the real place of empathetic connection, uh-huh. where the real healing can begin. And there is a beautiful story in the book, um, I'll just hint at it, of one of the founders of the German hospice movement, Johann Christoph Student, who was a palliative care doctor on a, uh, on a children's oncology ward. When a, when a child would die, he just would pretend like it never happened. And he did this way. This was in, in, the, in the 80s prior to the hospice movement there hmm. until his little girl Nina died, wow. infant daughter died. And that put him on a contemplative path. Uh, his own powerlessness to save hmm. his own daughter's life um, is what put him in this path and really became a mover and shaker in founding hospice care and the hospice concept in, in Germany. So I'm just putting that out as a, as a, like a hint for, for folks to want to read that story there. Mm. So I wanted to bring that full circle that it is getting in touch with our own powerless to make something happen. It's really where the empathetic connection and, and where the, the real spiritual care can take place. And that is a reciprocity. Our own growth is involved in that there. Oh, thank you so much. I, I just, before you go into the next part, I, um, just want to underscore you you've touched on something that is really deeply part of our humanity um, that connects us all in a kind of interwoven way that we are frail <laughs> despite what we might think when we're 16 or something and and we have that in common and when we deeply sink into that and realize it and we connect with other people and we're not afraid of it uh, it unites us and it unites us to reality as well. And I think that is such a, such an important point and point of growth. You know, it's kind of our worst fear. What if I can't handle it? What if I don't have the power to, to handle it? What if I can't fix it? It's like, actually, you don't have the, <laughs> you don't have it and you never have. But, uh, mm-hmm. and that's where we're the same. You know, uh, I think that's just such an excellent point. Thank you. Yes. Yes. So, um, 
Well, that ties in nicely with the question about my father. That this, this, um, uh, when, when, when we, when there is suffering in our lives, we often, you know, I've experienced it in my own life. I can say this is a strategy I've tried to use, which doesn't work. I try to mm. protect myself from suffering by, by cutting myself off. So mm -hmm. from, from, from others who, who I make myself believe they're not like me. If someone has hurt me, mm. I don't need them in my life. Mm. Um, I'm, um, and then if there's suffering in my life that I don't know how to work with, I can try to, what, what's often called spiritually bypassing or psychologically trying to jump over it. I'm, oh, I'm getting, I'm beyond that. I don't, mm. I don't care about that. And so, so in my relationship with my dad, there, there was a, as I, you know, write about some in the book, um, you know that my my dad hit me as a child, um, and and so there was a some you know, struggles in my relationship with him prior to my mother being killed, um, and then when my mother was killed, it, it sort of ramped up some there where I you know, trying as a young you know, teenager trying to connect with him and um, uh, with this with the, with his past of abuse and wasn't able to, and so I got to a point where where I cut him out of my life right? mm -hmm. I, like I don't you know I was 19 years old and I said this is this is it I'm, I'm, I'm not talking to him again and sort of made this vow to myself that I wouldn't talk to this guy again mm -hmm. and and I'm grateful that that there was some spark in me I don't know the source of it but there was some grace in my life where yeah. where somehow I knew that wouldn't be possible you know that that and so there were as I describe in the book I tried on a couple occasions to, to in my 20s and to talk with him and but I was always trying to get something from him. I was always mm. trying to get him to apologize for, and to see what he did and how he hurt me and to apologize mm. for it. And it, it only brought more suffering because I was approaching it with this, with this attitude of trying to, trying to get from him and mm. really separating myself that, that, you know, that I am this victim and he is this perpetrator, which there was truth to that. He did, did hurt me, did do things that, that uh, I believe were not best for him to do and for me mm -hmm. to, to receive and yet what I came to find over the years I witnessed myself caring for people at the end of life and and some people I, I can just say I didn't really like it I didn't mm. this person irritated me or this person I sort of figured who was this person you know prior to being in the deathbed here mm. and and, um, you know, I've cared for people who had really different values than me. Mm -hmm. You know, look at how our, our society is so divided now, um, uh, partisan right now, mm -hmm. where people can't seem to talk or the, talk to each other and can hate each other because they have different policy views, this mm -hmm. sort of thing. Well, I cared for people who had really different values than me. Some, right. you know, care for one guy who was, he was pretty racist. Mm -hmm. and, and so, so in a sense of morally, I, I had a sense of disgust. You know, mm -hmm. and, and by some of the things he would say, and still, mm -hmm. still found a way to, to show up and and mm -hmm. and help relieve his 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 pain, to give him some sort of companionship, you know, mm -hmm. to journey with him. Um, um, I won't tell all the story here, but I but but I, I, I as I came to to witness this to myself, and then interview others and hear others telling the stories of similar of how their heart was stretching, as they were caring for for people who pushed their buttons. That became a question for me of, hey, can I offer this to my own father? You know, what would it be like to show up for my dad with the same sort of um, the same mindset, the same heart set of just offering spiritual friendship without trying to get something from him? Right. And so I just called him up one day and said, you know, I hadn't spoken to him in, in more than a decade. And just said, Dad, can I, you know, can I come visit you? And he said, sure. He was um, elderly at this point and, and was having his late 70s and was, um, having trouble walking, so he hopped on. He had a kick bike, just a bicycle, where he would not pedal it, but sort of kick it, just to take the weight off his legs. And he went down into the backyard and, and in his garden and, and sat. And for three hours, hmm. I just asked, just to get Dad, tell me about your life. Hmm. And he told me just all kinds of stories from his life, including losing his mother to cancer when he was nine, and, and other really painful experiences and this was the only time in my life hmm. the only time where I saw my father cry wow. and and this was the only time in my life where I truly listened to him mm. <laughs> and so this was a a, a, a beginning of a, an important step in a healing journey for me that I can give this to my dad I can give this have this intention to offer this to anyone mm. and so that so, so uh, when he was then dying some years later was able to go to uh, to a chemotherapy session with him and to have a kind of healing with him mm -hmm. 
um, before he died that I'm really grateful that that I um, had this caregiving practice that that allowed me to to not be bound. I'm 50 years old now. He he died in in 2007, and I'm really glad that these years later I'm I can write a book and and include the dedication of the book to my mom and to my dad and and, mm. and to my stepmother, and 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 not need to to feel like um, I can't be grateful mm-hmm. even with the the suffering can still be grateful for what I did receive from him. Mm. And did it, did it feel like closure? Did it feel like healing? Well, um, I'll say you asked two different questions there. <laughs> okay. Did it like, okay. Did it feel like closure and did it feel like healing? It's, okay. So certainly, certainly healing in, 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 you know, when I say healing, well, um, what does healing mean? Well, I'm, I'm, am I reacting from a place of so healing of wholeness? Mm-hmm. Right? Am I reacting? Am, am I responding to to what is from a place of wholeness? Am I responding from a place of injured, mm-hmm. um, from a place of wounding, from a place of victim, from a place of scarring? Mm-hmm. And so, in that sense, I'm certainly healing. Any that that is the spiritual practice of of turning towards my own suffering and finding a way to integrate that suffering mm. in my life. These are the, the people I've interviewed telling mm-hmm. beautiful stories of, of such integration. So certainly healing. Uh, what, what a gift of uh, this practice is of cultivating these capacities of compassion. Mm-hmm. So closure, closure is one of those words that we use around grief um, that um, sure, sure, I can say yes, sure, sure. And but I also want to sort of make reflect on that word that we often are encouraged in our culture to approach grief as something that we can resolve, that we can mm-hmm. that we can you know, closure means it was just open and now it's done, it's finished, this sort of thing. And mm-hmm. and I would say that the the you know the pain around this tragedy of losing my mom, the pain um, and, and and the experience. Of, of all that transpired with my with my father, mm-hmm. it's still it's still alive in my life. So it's, mm. it's my my reactivity to it. Yeah, that's that's closed in, in, in the sense that it's not a driving force. Where I'm actively mm. trying to cut that off my life. But I would say that it's integrated. That mm. that there's for me that there's never a getting over of, of the closing of it. Uh, you know, the moving beyond a tragedy. It's mm. the integrating it in our lives is where the healing is. Yeah, yeah. I guess um. I'm thinking um, like putting something to rest in the sense of my my dad and I made peace or, you know, that type of thing um, in, in whatever way that could happen, that kind of closure. But because now that he's gone, you could, in a sense, reconcile something or have a chance to... Um, your heart i mean you can't exactly reckon you you didn't get an apology did you or mm-hmm. no healing uh, think of when we've suffered and particularly when when we've been harmed we can mm-hmm. have a capacity to harm each other and so right. when we just take take um you know grief is a, is there some kind of broken bond right so, mm. so you know um uh when someone dies that that our our, our connection with them is challenged right it's broken and so mm-hmm. so then when there is this harm when someone's harms up there's other ways that this human bond is broken that 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 we can then you know there's there's forgiveness there's reconciliation there's these things that we that we that we might want mm-hmm. and so when i speak of this healing mm-hmm. um no there wasn't reconciliation is that's a two-way street where there's accountability where, the, where someone yeah. is is uh, feel a sense of remorse for what right, they did and right. is able to account for that. Mm-hmm. There was no conversation with my father about things he had done to me. There was no there was no mm-hmm. conversation around. So there was no reconciliation mm-hmm. in that sense. And I would even say there was no. I'm not even using the word forgiveness that I've forgiven my dad. I would just say that I've come to terms with who my father is and how suffering shaped who he was. Mm. And so I've. If anyone's been forgiven, I would say it's a forgiving of myself for all the ways that I'm kind of like my dad. <laughs> uh, all the ways that, that I have the suffering in my life that I try to cut off from and, and ways mm. that, that I can be aggressive with myself and others. Mm-hmm. But I would say that the that even after someone dies, mm. 
mm-hmm. that there is a possibility for healing. You know, that might not be about forgiveness or reconciliation, which requires that person's engagement. So there's, mm-hmm. a, you know, there's, a, there's a woman I interviewed, she was an immigrant from Nicaragua, um, who immigrated to the United States in the 1970s. And she spoke about the tremendous pain of, of mm-hmm. you know, as a child losing family members, often to, to political violence mm-hmm. in her country at the time, to murder, but then also losing... I believe it was her little nephew, Enrique, who mm. who died um, because of a lack of medical care mm. in, in her country. And so she described coming to the U.S. and and getting in touch with this tremendous suffering of all of these these deaths and, and, and losses in her family and, and and lack of educational opportunity and medical care. And then all and then her mother died as well when she was in the U.S. and was unable mm. to to be present to to her mother's dying. Mm-hmm. This, this woman described very p- profoundly the turning to hospice work. Um, and she really discovered this through doing the work, that this was part of the motivation, was a turning towards and, and healing, having a, a spiritual healing around all these losses in her life, where she was able, as an adult, to go back to Nicaragua um, and find the grave where her mother was buried and where her little nephew and, and brother were buried yeah. and really um, have this, you know, this spiritual healing mm-hmm. even long after some these individuals had died and mm-hmm. what she found was that the caregiving was a way of of continuing that bond a way mm-hmm. of integrating those losses in her life and one way of caring for example for other immigrants mm-hmm. in san francisco um who were like her that mm-hmm. had family back in another country who that she could be there so this this man mm-hmm. who's dying was her father was her mother mm-hmm. was her brother that mm-hmm. can stand in for and, and offer a kind of spiritual healing in that way. Wow. So I would just say that way that even after someone dies um, in my own life and, and hearing others, there's a way that we can still integrate and, and have a kind of healing around that loss mm-hmm. and, and whatever may have been broken in that relationship. That's really powerful. There's just one more um, thing I'd like you to address before we wrap up. Um, you mentioned something I thought was was pretty powerful because I think there's many people, in, including myself, um, who have thought, well, it, it takes someone with with a lot of courage or a lot of a really special kind of person to be with someone as they're dying and and to see them to that to that point to that transition point. And you really say that that that's more of a myth. Could you address that? You say that on page 180 in your book. I agree with the founders of, of the hospice movement that, that we, it is a natural human capacity to care, that we have this within us, and, and we've largely forgotten it in, in the modern world where we mm. sort of see that dying is something that takes place in nursing homes and hospitals and, you know, out, not, not in, our own, in our own home. We don't have the capacity to do this. Mm. And so, um, so that's sort of a starting point for this, but it, but it is true in my own life that, like, I never had any sort of upbringing as a caregiver. I wasn't, like, caring for younger siblings or, mm-hmm. or I wasn't, you know, I have a, f- a friend who, you know, when she was 12, her mother, you know, volunteered her to be a volunteer granddaughter at a nursing home, you know. <laughs> oh. uh, I, never, I never had this kind of experience where I was, you know, put in places where I was, you know, uh, caring for for others in some way. So this wasn't part of my heritage, my my Mm -hmm. lineage. But I found when there is that intention, when we have this intention, a desire to care, so even if we don't feel prepared, Mm -hmm. that that desire to care really is crucial. And and, and I would say with that, a willingness to, to continue ongoingly prepare ourselves. So if we have a supportive context, if we have an intention to care and a supportive context, um, I would say anyone can do this. And mm-hmm. that's not just a belief. That's grounded in, in, in I'm a social scientist, and in my, my own research that I interviewed, um, included in the book as a set of interviews with, with nine men in a maximum security prison. And these were men who um, most of them had killed someone. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them had engaged in violent crimes, whether it be uh, armed robbery, um, sexual assault, um, and none of them, none of them had had any kind of practice of caregiving in their lives. Mm-hmm. All of them described how, 
how caring they, they were in a prison and there was there was you know we have a, live in a country where so many people are now dying in prison mm-hmm. and so there's a prison infirmary and they would go down and and have the opportunity to, to be in the room and care for, for, for their fellow inmates in the mm-hmm. final you know, days and weeks of their lives and and how this was the first time in their life where they had had any opportunity to engage in such a practice mm-hmm. of caring. So all these different components of compassion, of having loving intention, of having this um, what we call mindfulness or this moment-to-moment awareness of what someone's needs are so I can actually meet their needs and set my own agenda, mm-hmm. capacity for an empathetic connection, and then this capacity even to extend compassion to those we might not even like, so to extend the reach of compassion. All these components, dimensions of compassion, these men were practicing with their fellow dying inmates. And so I would say that they've had a lifetime of, of violence. Mm-hmm. Has this, this capacity with the supportive context at that prison of a mm-hmm. hospice program there with tremendous support mm-hmm. for them to care. We all can do this. Mm-hmm. And um, that compassion really is our heritage. And so it does take courage. Mm-hmm. But as I write, as, as I express in the book, it's not a, courage doesn't mean that we're not afraid. It means that, that we can step forward even in the, in the face of that fear. Mm-hmm. And we can, can draw inspiration from others who've gone before. I, that's the first part of the book of trying to have mm-hmm. a, seeing ourselves, we're having a lineage, a heritage that we're carrying in. Mm-hmm. And hospice is a great place to start. So the, the point of the book isn't mm-hmm. to turn people into hospice volunteers. If someone's <laughs> motivated to tell them to do that. But simply to illustrate how hospice is a, a wonderful, I'm so grateful for, for these founders of the hospice who created this context where sort of, you know, everyday people like me can, can cultivate these capacities. Mm. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that it it's not like it, you have to think that you have to do a perfect job or that um, there's mm-hmm. like one way to do it or one kind of person that does it, that everybody has their own special way to to be present and available. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think that that desire for perfection can, can lead us to not undertake something if we don't, you know, that we cannot have the confidence because we think we got to get it right. Mm. Um, I tell stories in, in the book of, from other people's experience and from my own of times where I didn't get it right. Mm-hmm. And, and the question of the spiritual practices, can I, can I, can I make that right by having that be a learning opportunity mm-hmm. rather than, than beating myself down and, and turning away from continuing in the practice? Mm. Well, thank you so much, John, for, for doing this work, for doing hospice work, and also for, for writing about it so, so eloquently, so vulnerably. And it's just a very powerful book. I haven't read something quite like this uh, in a long time, and so I'm just grateful that you've done it. Maybe you can tell people where they can find you online, and I know you also give workshops and things like that. Do you want to explain a little bit of that? Yes, thank you. Sure. So um, my website would be the best place to connect with me, and that's just www.johnericbauer.com. I'm sure that'll be in the in the liner notes here. And so on my website, so you know, if you if you want to pick up a copy of the book on the homepage of my website. You know, through the end of the year, you can um, can can sign up for for uh, my newsletter, and there you can get a coupon to get 30% off. There'll, there'll be a code you'll receive to get 30% off the book when you buy it from the publisher. Um, but also, um, so I'm beginning to blog, and so soon. Um, uh, so if you join my newsletter, I'll let you know when the when the latest blog or is coming out. That sort of thing will be posted on on the website. And then I yes, I offer. Um, uh, workshops and, and speaking if someone is a uh, you know runs a hospice and wants me to come in to help train train their staff or their volunteers that's some work I do and then I offer um, support for individuals both bereavement support this is not clinical it is it is um, uh, but approaching grief as a space for um, compassionate development for spiritual growth. So I do that both in person and uh, online with, um, uh, through Skype, video conferencing, and then offer um, caregiving mentoring. So, uh, so, so mm-hmm. part of this work of 
having folks see you have it in you. So mm -hmm. just um, this this involves it can be online of uh, vi video conferencing, but also of literally going with folks mm -hmm. coming into your home or into the nursing home if you have a parent or grandparent there, and modeling mm -hmm. these contemplative uh, approaches to caregiving and helping folks, giving a space for reflecting. Uh, and feedback on one caregiving practice, and oftentimes these are just a couple of visits so you can mm -hmm. sort of see, you actually are doing a pretty damn good job. You can actually <laughs> can, do, can do this. And mm -hmm. so the, the intention is to, is to with, the, with this kind of mentoring or, or coaching, is, uh, mm -hmm. is uh, you know, we have coaching in so many other things, so mm -hmm. why not have it in caregiving, you know, to, mm -hmm. to really help, help folks see, see um, I can do this, I can mm -hmm. do this. So on my website, those, all those offerings are listed there. So there's ways to connect with me, and um, that would be the starting point. Mm, perfect. Thank you so much, John. Is there anything else that you want to share with my listeners before you go? Um, I think that's it. I'm really grateful for um, you know for the opportunity to speak and to talk about the book and to talk about my work. And I would say most importantly, I want to say to all the listeners who are engaged in caregiving, uh, for, for you know whether it's through hospice volunteering or if we're you know a nurse or you know in healthcare or or in your own family, to um, just really grateful that we are all in this together, doing our best. And however I can can be of support, connect with me. I'm I'm really grateful to to be part of a what I see as a movement mm -hmm. of supporting um, con compassionate caregiving practice um, in healthcare, in our families, and in all spheres of society. So glad to be a part of that with listeners. If you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. I've created an all access pass and you can access the access pass for just $1. It unlocks all show note episodes too. It's a reoccurring $1 a month and you can cancel at any time. Just go to patreon.com forward slash sparkmymuse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash sparkmymuse. Remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your podcast app. And I invite you to sign up for my newsletter at sparkmymuse.com. I try to send out a message once or twice a month. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.